for myself personally, I people will often ask me, what's your favorite park? That that's that's a sort of a typical question I get. And I have a really hard time answering that because parks are so different. They fall into different categories. And it's not really fair to compare Canopy Lake, for example, to Disneyland. Um and, and I always say that I love them all, and I truly mean that. I mean, I, I love little tiny Quasi. I love Coney Island. Uh, it, it's just, it reminds me of Revere Beach, and, and, and it kind of allows me to return to my childhood. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. How are you? I am fantastic. Woo. Ooh, all right. Yeah. You stretched it out a little bit there. A little bit, a little yeah. bit. So I got a question for you. All right. Might might be a two-part question. Okay. So it sounds like a-, a podcast interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a book coming out. Mm. That's do, you the plan. Can, do you consider yourself a writer? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think once the book is published, I'll probably be able to answer that. Okay. I think I'll be as much of a writer as I consider myself a podcaster. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. I think. Well, so to to maybe sum that up, I think that I, uh, you know, I've we we have message we have a message that we want to put out there, and we have various uh, mediums of doing so. So it could be yeah. through could be through a podcast. Um, and I think, uh, yeah. So I think writer could be one of part of part of those. Okay, yeah. gotcha. ways to share the message. Exactly. That's a good point. That's a good good way to look at that. Was there a second part to the question? Um, kind of. So, and it may have depended on the answer, which you kind of went in a different direction, which is totally okay. But if you do consider yourself a writer, um, or you know maybe just somebody with a message to get out there. How do you keep it going? Mm. How do you keep doing podcasts? How do you keep, you know, because you've got two podcasts. How do you keep going with writing and 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 continuing to get that message out there? Well, that's a good question. I think I was more <laughs> prepared with the response to the first one. Uh, well, I think part of it is is about consistency. We've talked about that a lot, you know, on, on the show here. And that's that's how we keep doing this. This is our 280th episode. I think... For our sake, I think the joint accountability is uh, is a huge part of it. That we we set out from episode one, we said we're going to put out a new episode every single Tuesday, and we've done that now, two hundred eighty times in a row. <laughs> and then I think you know, as you build that consistency, it becomes more natural, it becomes a habit. I would yes. say, yes, yeah, I would say so too. Would you also say that passion plays a part in that? I think it plays a huge part in that. If there was no passion, then it would fizzle out very quickly. And I think that the the content itself would absolutely suffer. So absolutely. what about you? Do you <laughs> consider yourself a writer and what keeps you going? <laughs> I sort of do consider myself a writer um, two since two books and um, lots of blog posts and things like that. What's funny is um, my wife will say, you know, write something in this greeting card. She's mm. like, you're a writer. You should be able to, <laughs> but that's harder for me. That is harder. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, on some level, I guess I do consider myself a writer, but yes, passion does absolutely play into that. I will say that I've written a lot less blog posts since we started podcasting mm-hmm. um, because a lot of the messages have come through our conversations. And I think whether it's written or it's in this format, to me, as long as I'm getting it out there in some way, I think that's that's to me the consistency part and that that fuels that passion. Um, but part of the reason I'm asking this is because our guest today has used his passion to fuel his career as a writer and mm-hmm. someone who has really transformed his his born passion of theme parks and amusement parks and everything entertainment 
into something where he's actually making money doing it. Right. They, they say, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And I think that's that right. that's it's true about Arthur Levine, our guest today, as well as uh, probably a lot of people who are who are listening to this podcast right now, because I think it's very true of uh, of just so many people in our industry. And that's what, that's what keeps the industry going is the passion and and people loving what they do. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned we get to speak to Arthur Levine today, uh, somebody who's been writing about theme parks for about 30 years. And it's just great to hear some of his stories and experiences and also how journalism has changed along with how theme parks have changed. But maybe they haven't changed all that much. We ask him about technology and the fact that technology has always been a driver of attendance into theme parks. And now that's the same as it was 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, I thought that was uh, just such an interesting way that uh, that he phrased that because we talked about, you know, we talked about the, the old trolley parks, uh, some some we've heard of, some we haven't. Uh, and, you know, really how they're able to keep going by uh, by really respecting and honoring their history while at the same time uh, bringing in new guests and appealing to today's audience, which is very technology driven. And, uh, you know, we, I remember talking to Mark Locker a year ago, he told us about the difference between digital natives and digital immigrants and that the digital natives have a lot, uh, uh, very different expectations that parks today, attractions today need to appeal to. But at the same time, for those with a strong history, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a line to balance. So we talk about, we talk about blending that nostalgia with technology. Uh, we talk a lot about theme park journalism. And like you said, how journalism has changed over the years and how how he has even changed uh, his style over the years as well. He has started a sub stack recently that you're able to subscribe to. And we've got the links to that in the show notes. And, uh, and he shares that with us in the interview as well. Uh, and then just like what we started out talking about right here, talks about turning your passion into your career. So should we go ahead and grab... Arthur's luggage and uh, get into this interview. Yes, you'll see exactly what we're talking about. I think around halfway through or so, but <laughs> here he is. Hey, Arthur, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. We're so excited for our chat with you today. How are you? I'm doing fine. And thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. And uh, like I said, we're you know, really excited to, to jump into this here. So to kick this off, tell us a little bit about what you do and, and tell us a, a little background on your career as well. Well, I'm, I'm a theme park journalist. I've been doing this for 30 years, actually a little over 30 years at this point. Um, absolutely love what I do. I write about uh, parks and attractions um, for a variety of audiences. And um, uh, in the early days, I, I wrote for newspapers and magazines. You guys remember newspapers and magazines, right? Um, and, uh, you know, traditional media. Um, about 20 years ago, I began writing online for about.com. Uh, a lot of folks might know me for many years. I, I wrote about parks for USA Today. Um, and online, I, I wrote for about.com, and which later became Trip Savvy. Um, but the it's it's uh, the journalism industry has changed dramatically over the course of my 30 year career, uh, drastically, I would say. And it's become more and more challenging to be a journalist these days. So last year I did something that many journalists uh, have been doing, and I started uh, writing for my uh, writing for Substack uh, uh, and, and it's something that I completely control. It's a completely different model. Uh, rather than writing for somebody else and hoping that people find me, um, it, it's a direct-to-subscriber model. Uh, so I, I twice a week, I uh, post an article and people get it sent directly to their email inbox. And so that's uh, that's what I'm doing now. And that's briefly what I've been doing for the past 30 years. Awesome. Uh, you know, before we started recording, uh, you mentioned that this is such a passion project for you. And, you know, you you really get to live your passion through your writing. So can we talk a little bit about how that passion for theme parks kind of got started? Yeah, yeah. One of the questions that you sent me uh, prior to our conversation today was was when did the did the passion begin? Uh, it might sound a little cliche, a little trite, um, I, but I, I think I was just born with the passion. Um, and and when I say that, I'm not being facetious. Some of my earliest memories, and I mean my very earliest memories. Uh, Matt, I know that you are from the New England area and you're, you're probably familiar with Revere Beach, which was, um, I, I live in New England as well, and uh, Revere Beach was 
Boston's answer to Coney Island. It was uh, a seaside uh, amusement uh, center. And um, my earliest memories, uh, I've shared this many times before, um, was uh, going to the beach with my mother, with my grandmother, and um, everybody would be sitting in their beach chairs or on their blankets facing the ocean. I would sit with my back to the ocean. And I'm talking about like I'm two years old or, you know, my early, very earliest memories. My back would be to the ocean. I'd be watching the cyclone roller coaster, the Virginia reel, the double Ferris wheel, the tilt-a-whirl for hours on end, just mesmerized by it. Uh, and, and again, these are my earliest memories. I don't know why. Um, I just was born that way. <laughs> and um, as, as most young kids do i i fell in love with with amusement parks but i kind of took it to the next level I, I remember um one of the first books that i took out from the library with my own library card when i was maybe in the second grade or third grade was a biography of walt disney because i was just fascinated with with parks i'd watch walt on his on his sunday evening program every week talking about disneyland and and got all excited about this magical place that was way up, way far in the distance. Uh, at a very young age, I was I was about six years old. I got to go to the New York World's Fair and was absolutely flabbergasted by what I discovered there. These these amazing attractions that Disney and, and others developed. I couldn't believe that this kind of entertainment was in the world. I, I knew about roller coasters and sort of traditional amusement parks, but when I saw these types of attractions, you know, it's a small world and the Carousel of Progress. I was just blown away. Uh, a few years later, I went to Disneyland, finally finally made that pilgrimage with my family. Um, and, and again, like I said, I kind of took it to the next level. I, I remember writing to the Disney company, letting them know what a wonderful time I had. And I hear that you're building this park in Florida. Do you Can you send me any information about it? And sure enough, I got this beautiful letter, hand, not handwritten, but typewritten back in those days, letter back with all kinds of information about uh, Walt Disney World. So this has just been something that from a very, very early age, um, it, it's, it's uh, I, I can't describe or I can't explain why, but I've just had this, this, this incredible passion. And fortunately, I've been able to turn my passion into uh, my vocation. And I've been, uh, as I said, writing about parks for the past 30 years. Arthur, can you talk about that transition point from consumer of the industry? So now, and then becoming a journalist and really, I would say working for, working on behalf of the industry, I can imagine that was probably, it was probably maybe, maybe a blur. And of course, I'm sure you're still a consumer of the industry, but can you talk about how you were able to, like you just said, turn that passion into your profession? Yeah. Yeah. And I would say, Matt, that I, I really am, I consider myself a fan first. I, I still have that sort of wide-eyed childlike wonder when I when I visit parks uh, and, and and I, I just have never lost that. So I I, I do consider myself so, still to this day, a, you know, a fan, a, very much a fan of, of, of parks and attractions in the industry. Um, and, and this wasn't anything I really planned. Uh, it all kind of happened um, by accident, I guess. Um, again, I was talking about magazines earlier and making a joke of, you know, if you guys remember them, but my father um, was an avid reader, loved going to magazine stands, which used to be a thing. Um, and I remember going with him. There was a very famous one, uh, uh, John, uh, Matt, you might, you might know about this. Um, in uh, Harvard Square, there was a place called the Out of Town Ticket Agency, and they had this enormous magazine newspaper stand with magazines and newspapers from all over the world and i remember going there one day with my dad we were uh in in town uh and um i saw this magazine that caught my eye it had the um the castle from the magic kingdom on the cover uh so i picked it up i bought it brought it home uh read this article about uh the magic kingdom and other attractions and it turned out that the magazine was uh called Storyboard, um, The Art of Animation. So it was for animation collectors. And um, as I was leafing through the magazine, I saw an ad for coming soon from the publishers of Storyboard, Theme Park Magazine. And I was like, wow, somebody's going to be writing a magazine about theme parks. This is this is crazy. And I had a bit of a background in writing. And um, I looked flipped to the front of the magazine and saw that it was going to be published in southern New Hampshire, which wasn't too far from my home. 
So I hounded the publisher for uh, days and weeks. And finally, he said, look, why don't you come up here? We'll we'll talk. And I, I kind of talked my way into writing the cover story for the debut issue of Theme Park Magazine, which was about the Back to the Future attraction uh, at uh, Universal Studios Florida. So that was my entree into the industry. I, I, As I said, it wasn't really by design. It was just kind of by happenstance. Um, but once I started writing about it, I was hooked and um, and I've been doing it ever since. So, Arthur, can you talk a little bit more about how you mentioned that journalism has changed? Um, certainly over the years in newspapers, magazines, now everything's online, not everything, but a lot of things are online. Um, and there's probably people out there that call themselves journalism journalists, but don't have the, the background or the talent or the skill that someone that's been doing it for so long uh, does have. So can you talk a little bit about how that's changed and maybe what opportunities or challenges have come with those changes? Well, yeah, it's it's really changed, as I said, dramatically. Um, when I began, um, the internet as we know it today really didn't exist. We're talking about 30 years ago, 31 years ago, 1992 is when I started. Uh, and, and the internet was in its infancy at that point. And um, so things that we take for granted today, Google and Facebook and all of these things didn't exist back then. Um, so uh, it, it really was the traditional journalism model of, uh, you know, you had an editor and, 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 and I wrote for things like Theme Park Magazine, which was this small boutique publication published out of Southern New Hampshire. But as time went on, I, 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 I wrote for the Boston Globe and USA Today and the New York Post and all of these these uh, traditional newspapers um, and, you know, their readership has just gone down dramatically. Um, many of the, the, the printed magazines and newspapers have either gone away or they've shrunk dramatically. The advertising has, uh, has, has gone away as well. And so the, the business model is just really, really difficult for, uh, for traditional newspapers, magazines, print journalism. Um, yes, many of them have an online, virtually all of them have an online presence, but to this day, they're still really struggling with how to kind of make that work. A few have successfully done it, of course, the New York Times is, is one, but many of them are still struggling and um, they, especially regional newspapers are just kind of going away altogether. And it, it breaks my heart as, as a journalist to see that. Um, but it, it is what it is. That's the reality. And I've tried to change with the times. As I said, 20 years ago, I started writing online and, and, and really enjoyed that. But even online, what, what really has bothered me more recently and, and, and just made it more difficult was in order to attract um, readers, users to come to stories, there's all this, uh, you know, clickbait and SEO silliness, search engine optimization, uh, there's gratuitous negativity, controversy for the sake of controversy, versy, and all of that stuff just drives me nuts. And, and I, I don't want to play that game. So that is why um, I'm hoping and other writers like myself are hoping that uh, this model that Substack is using, where you avoid all that, you go directly to subscribers, people come to you who want the content that you're creating. Um, it's ad free. Uh, the way that I make money, the way that other writers make money is um, some people, if they choose, are paid subscribers and they get bonus content. Um, but if people want to be a free subscriber, that's okay also. Um, and um, if, 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 if I can just say that my site is about theme parks and people can find it at abouttheparks.fun.fun. Uh, so that's where my site is. And if folks want to uh, find the content that I'm writing, which is really pretty much what I've been doing all of these years, it's just uh, kind of uh, a different model. Um, there, I, I, I highly encourage and welcome them to, uh, to, to check it out and hopefully become a subscriber. Yeah, and, and we'll definitely make sure to include that in the in the show notes as well once we uh, once we get to the end here. Um, 
When you tell people that you are a theme park journalist, particularly outside the industry, I can imagine that that probably paints a certain picture in, in people's minds that maybe is not exactly uh, what it is that you do. It, you know, I, I used to consult for luxury hotels and resorts. And when I told people that, they just pictured me ordering drinks on the beach and going yeah. to the spot and playing golf all day. And, and I can imagine probably a, a similar type of uh, circumstance with what you do. So what are what are some misconceptions about what you do? And and I would say, how do you how do you explain it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I I love this question because it it happens all the time. Um, people will ask me what I do, and I explain it, and you know I'll get responses like, "Well, gee, can I carry your luggage on your next trip?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and people, yes, they they think all I'm doing is just sort of traveling around and riding roller coasters and and drinking pina coladas by the hotel pool, um, and and it it drives me a little batty sometimes because um, I remember once I I was actually on air uh, it, it was a CBS this morning interview and and the reporter kept kind of needling me like like wow what a job you have and this is crazy and how did you get this job and finally I sort of got a little irate and I said look this is a real job I have deadlines I have uh, word counts. I have editors that I have to uh, answer to. I, I, you know, they're, 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 this is a serious business. It's the serious business of fun, I guess. Um, do I enjoy what I'm doing? Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I really, I just love it. Um, is there work involved? Yes. Uh, there's a great deal of work, and sometimes it's it's quite difficult. I'll I'll have deadlines, and I'll have to be up late at night or early in the morning or whatever. You know, pounding away at the keys, trying to trying to get that that story out um so there are definitely misconceptions um but that's not to say as i said that that i'm that i'm not having fun because i am having fun and and um i think if you can enjoy the work that you're doing that's that's a great blessing and i consider myself very blessed so arthur i just gotta ask i'm sure that there's tons of stories that you have from, you know, opening new attractions and reporting on the industry. Um, are there any fun stories you can think of that would be interesting to kind of hear, to kind of give us a glimpse of what this journalism life is all about from, you know, somebody who writes about theme parks? <laughs> um, I have a million stories I could <laughs> tell. There's just, there's so many. And as I said, I, I feel so blessed. Um, sometimes I'll have to pinch myself to uh, to, to, to remind myself that uh, I can't believe what I'm doing. Um, one of the things that I got to do was I was at the grand opening of Shanghai Disneyland, I guess it was about six, seven years ago. And, um, and, and that, that was just an amazing experience. It was my first trip to Asia and, uh, to be there for the grand opening. I got to interview Bob Iger and, uh, uh, that was just an amazing experience. Um, saw Marty Sklar walking around the park. For those of people who don't know, he was a legendary Imagineer, uh, led Walt Disney Imagineering for, for, for a number of years and had the distinction, by the way, of being the only person to have uh, been there at opening day for every single Disney park. Uh, unfortunately, Marty passed away a, a few years ago, but just a wonderful guy. Uh, so that's, that's one thing that I got to do. Um, about 25 years ago, one of the first um, media events that I got to go to was the 25th anniversary at that time of Walt Disney World. That was an amazing experience. Um, Disney still has some incredible media events that they put on press events, but they really used to do it up back in the old days. 25 years ago, there were 10,000 journalists there from all over the world. I met people from Australia and from Africa and Russia, and it was just incredible. And I remember at one point, uh, we were at Epcot and it uh, began raining and they actually had 10,000 umbrellas that they were ready to pass out to everybody. Um, and then there was this, uh, they, they had uh, a uh, an event at, I can't remember the name of the, um, the venue, it was the Orlando Arena or something in downtown Orlando, because I, I believe at the time there wasn't a, a venue on property that was big enough to accommodate 10,000 guests. And um, so they had this kickoff ceremony at this Orlando arena, but they had to get 10,000 journalists from Disney World to downtown Orlando. 
it was the most amazing thing I've the logistical thing I've ever seen. They had an army of buses. Uh, they had the state police along I-4 in Florida shut down every entrance and exit ramp so that this armada of buses could make it <laughs> from Disney World and back um, to to this arena. So just, I mean, that that, that was just kind of a, a crazy thing. And, and I've had the opportunity to do all kinds of amazing things. Like I was the first person outside of uh, the SeaWorld parks and Rocky Mountain construction to ride Iron Gwazi, for example, at uh, Bush Gardens last year, and got to write about that. I was, I, I sort of, I had an exclusive to write about that. Um, I was the first person to ride Mako at SeaWorld, the first person to ride uh, Wonder Woman Golden Lasso at Six Flags Fiesta Texas, the the first um, single rail, RMC single rail coaster. Uh, so I, I've had all these amazing experiences and opportunities, and uh, those are just a few of them. I, I could share a million more if you had the time, but yeah. uh, I'm sure you don't. <laughs> well, if you need anyone to carry your luggage. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I just, tears right here. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, one of the things I remember from the 25th anniversary of Walt Disney World was that they they turned the castle into a cake. And I yes. remember seeing that picture, and it looked spectacular it looked absolutely stunning well, spectacular or, or hideous depending on your <laughs> on your perspective well the the yeah. idea of the fact that they could do it <laughs> is that is that it worked what i then heard from other people who were there was that they got the picture and then after that it just it just wasn't as flawless after it was it was starting to sort of fall apart it didn't didn't really work very well from the journalist's standpoint and knowing that you you go to so many places, you see so much, you you see the blemishes of of the industry from the front of house perspective. Uh, how do you take that and uh, how does that impact your journalism style? And I think that if this might turn into a two-part question, I think that it is, who, who are you working for? Are you working for the parks? Are you working for the publication? Or are you working for the reader, the consumer who's going to take that? Because I can imagine that that probably influences how you say, you know what, here's some imperfections over here. And here's how I'm going to address them in the work that's going to be seen by so many people. Well, I would say that it, it's the reader first and foremost. Um, however, in my case, uh, exactly who that reader is kind of varies depending on the publication or the outlet. And, and I would say I have three audiences. Um, for, the, for the many years that I was writing for USA Today and, and to a slightly lesser degree, writing online for About.com and Trip Savvy and, and, and other outlets and other publications, um, that was a general readership audience. And so I, I, I kind of had to write every story, every article, uh, assuming that the reader had pretty much no knowledge of of what I was writing about, and so I had to, you know, really kind of explain everything from a from a, uh, a layperson's perspective. And um, the second audience that I would say that I write for, um, I, I've been doing quite a bit of writing for um, IAPA. Um, and and Fun World, uh, Fun World Magazine, which is their publication, and that of course is uh, kind of the audience that that uh, your podcast appeals to. That's the uh, inside the industry folks and business to business. So that's a very different audience. Um, and then the third audience, I would say, is probably the one that I'm writing for mostly today, and that is more the enthusiast, the the, the fan, the super fan of parks and attractions. So. What I write and 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 how I um, write about things, as I said, kind of varies depending on the audience. Uh, so I always keep that in mind. You know, I, I said earlier that I, I consider myself a fan of of the uh, of the industry to this day, and and I do. Um, and even though I've kind of seen it all, um, I, I still get get excited, as I said, when I go to parks. But I I try to put myself in the shoes of the reader, uh, the average user, and uh, when I visit parks to make sure that they get the information they need to plan their visits or to do whatever it is that that they do, depending, again, on who that audience is. So I hope that explains it. Arthur, I'm wondering if we can step back just for a second. Um, 
back to when you were talking about Revere Beach and you mentioned the Virginia Reel. Um, unfortunately, the only place I've seen a Virginia Reel is in Roller Coaster Tycoon. I've never seen one in person. Um, but also it, it makes me think of uh, a part of your website where you talk about, you have a whole section on classic parks. Um, and I'm a huge fan of, of classic parks. And I'm wondering in your experience, obviously the classic kind of traditional amusement park, like trolley parks, they're, they're um, not nearly as many as there used to be, but what is the role of a park like that? And can those parks survive in today's climate? It's a challenge. Certainly uh, you said that there are, are not that many of them. And that unfortunately is the case. The ones that remain, um, I think the reason that they remain, uh, there's a number of, of factors, um, but but among among the most important factors that they've kind of changed with the times and they've they've uh, been able to um, to adapt and to um, evolve and to do the things that all parks and attractions need to do and that's kind of reinvent themselves and um, make sure that they're they're investing in new capital and bringing new attractions and giving uh, folks new reasons to visit um, so. You know, places like Kennywood, and um, I, I know that you said that you uh, you began your your career at Canopy Lake, um, yeah. a place near and dear to my heart here in in New England. Um, they've been able to, um, to to do some some wonderful things. Even a little tiny park like Quasi in Connecticut, um, a, another trolley park. Um, it is so tiny, and yet virtually every year they're introducing something new, which is astonishing given the size of the park. Uh, they have a wonderful wooden coaster that they uh, introduced a few years back, really expanded their water park. So they're doing what they need to do to remain relevant today. And that's um, that that's a great lesson that I think all parks and attractions can, can, uh, can take away. Yeah. And how do you see them being able to really balance the, and so the, the nostalgia with, like you said, being re relevant and, and investing and, you know, and, and introducing new attractions, new experiences, because I, they almost have this, I would say, re responsibility to honor the past, but at the yeah. same time, you, you can't turn it into a history museum because it needs to be living, breathing and, and active for today's consumer and the changing consumer and the digital natives who are used to seeing things done differently. Um, right. And you kind of have to straddle that line a little bit, you know? That's right, that's right. By the way, you guys ask wonderful questions. I, I've got to say, <laughs> I'm really enjoying this. Um, Yes, yes, that that's that's a that's a difficult path to walk, and and it's a it's it's a delicate balancing act, and it's not just um it's not just old trolley parks that that have to deal with that. Places like Disney, the the Disney parks, definitely have that as well. There are, um, God forbid, if you try to do something at Disneyland to change, you know, one of the opening day. Uh, rides or attractions, uh, you know, the people come out with their pitchforks and they're ready to 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 kill the the management there. Um, so yes, it's a very delicate balancing act. Um, for myself personally, I people will often ask me, "What's your favorite park?" That that's that's a sort of a typical question I get, and I have a really hard time answering that because. Parks are so different; they fall into different categories, and it's not really fair to compare Canopy Lake, for example, to Disneyland. Um, and, and I always say that I love them all, and I truly mean that. I mean, I, I love little tiny Quasi. I love Coney Island. Uh, it, it's just it reminds me of Revere Beach, and 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 it kind of allows me to return to my childhood. Um, but that's really part of the appeal of of amusement parks that ability to um, return to a place of, of childhood wonder and to relive some memories and to pass along those memories uh, you know from generation to generation it's 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 a wonderful thing for a parent a grandparent a great-grandparent an uncle whoever to take a child to a place that they loved when they were young and to say you know look at this wonderful place and now it's time for you to make your memories and and kind of the the um, you know the, the 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 legacy lives on or continues on, um, 
but at the same time, you, you, you're absolutely right, um, Josh, that parks cannot live on the past alone. They need to reinvent themselves. And yes, uh, Disneyland does a great job with many, many opening day attractions still there. And, you know, you can ride the carousel and you can uh, you can go on Dumbo, but you can also go to uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, the most cutting edge attraction perhaps in the world um so th there, there's a balancing act that that needs to happen and kennywood is is another place that has um an incredible collection of of, of old rides and and the people who live in the pittsburgh area are so passionate about kennywood but they're also opening up um incredible new roller coasters uh record-breaking steel giant roller coasters that uh that uh get give people a whole new reason to have to come visit the park so that that's it, it it's an important uh it, yes it's difficult um but it's um it just kind of comes with the territory this is the game that parks and attractions need need to play in order to be successful i think so arthur as josh and i carry your luggage from park to park i'm curious what is it like to go to a park with you, someone who's who knows so much, um, has so much insight. You know, sometimes when I'm in a park and depending on who I'm with, I can maybe be a little annoying, right? <laughs> so, um, I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying, what what is that experience like? Are you are you always on? Can you kind of turn that off and just be a consumer? What what is it like? Well, uh, I'm sure uh to, to some of the folks who have had the fortune or misfortune to accompany me to a park um they would say that i'm so super annoying um i'm just probably i i'm spouting factoids and giving them what they probably consider to be totally useless information um but um at the same time um you know as i said i still have that 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 um childlike innocence when i go to a park and one of the joys that i get is to see the park through other people's eyes so to go with somebody who is maybe a complete newbie or somebody who's sort of more of a casual fan um, to introduce them to something that maybe they haven't experienced before and to watch them experience that, that gives me great pleasure and great joy. And uh, um, I was able to do that with my two boys who are now grown adults through the years. And that was a wonderful experience. Um, my wife comes from a very large family. And so my um, she has uh, a number of sisters and uh, my kids have a lot of cousins. And I've been able to put together some epic theme park family uh, vacations through the years and that was a joy as well um a challenge sometimes but but mostly a joy uh to be able to see all of these people together uh experiencing a park and and i felt kind of proud and pleased that i was able to impart some of my knowledge and some of my you know shortcuts and uh, ways to experience the park uh so can i be annoying absolutely <laughs> um but are there some positive benefits to going to a park with me i think so i think so yeah <laughs> arthur what do you see as your responsibility to the industry because given the work that you do the size of your audience the size of your influence Based on your work, people are going to this park or going to this park or not going to this park, or it it probably it has has some influence on the attendance of the parks given the size of the publications, USA Today, about.com. I even heard you referenced in an episode of Gilmore Girls once. <laughs> and as far as driving kind of overall traffic and attendance, how do, how do you take that? How do you carry that? Well, as I said earlier, one of the things that's really bothered me more recently about writing online was this need to, not need, but this um, th 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 there's this compelling reason to try to attract users by maybe being provocative for the sake of being provocative, and that is just shoddy journalism, and and I'll have I'll have no part of it. Um, and I, I just I just won't do it. And that's kind of what drove has driven me to to Substack where I can, um, you know, be totally authentic and do what I feel I need to do. Uh, at the same time, I think it's important to both my readers um, as well as to the industry to be honest and to be fair uh, and to let folks know, you know, what is 
something that I think that they should check out and sometimes maybe something that perhaps the industry needs to know that there could be some improvement here. Um, and I'm not shy about saying that when it needs to be said, but I always want to approach it very carefully with as much journalistic integrity as I can, uh, as, as, as should be used and, um, and, uh, you know, in, in a very professional way. Um, and I think the parks, you know, hopefully they respect that about me. Um, they're probably not too pleased sometimes if I say things that aren't a hundred percent complimentary, but, um, you know, this is, um, this is the role that I play and that's the role that they play. And, and I think they understand that. Um, and so, yes, I do feel I have a responsibility to both the parks and to, uh, to, to the attractions and, and to readers. Um, and it's something that I take very seriously. So Arthur, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about technology. Uh, you mentioned Galaxy's Edge, you know, super, um, super high technology attractions and, you know, just amazing. Josh and I got to run Smuggler's Run together. Um, you know, as many podcasts as we've, done, as we've done together, I don't know that we've ridden more than a handful of rides together. Um, but we need to fix that. <laughs> we, we need to fix that, exactly. Um, but, you know, thinking about technology and, you know, in, in the parks that I go to, and maybe it's just me, but I can get so much enjoyment out of something simple, like a, a tumble bug, right? Or something oh, like yeah. that, or, or an old roller coaster, like you mentioned, Kennywood, uh, Jackrabbit, I think is just oh, an amazing ride. I love Jackrabbit. <laughs> and, and so you take that, that was built so many years ago, and then you compare that to, a, you know, a Hogwarts, or you uh, compare it to um, Smuggler's Run, and those type of things. And, you know, obviously it's different people, different audiences, but can we go too far with technology? Can we, can we, you know, as much as those kind of older attractions are still fulfilling, do we get too far away from them and create something that is less enjoyable because of technology? I'm not sure if there's a great question in there, but um, maybe, maybe you get where I'm coming from. I, I do. I think I do get where you're coming from. And okay. The answer is no, I don't think we can overdo technology. What I think is very important is that whenever there is um, some kind of um, uh, some kind of um, next generation leap in technology that a park is taking, or even if it's if it's existing technology maybe being uh, employed in a new way, it's important very important for the story always to come first and that technology whatever it is that 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 is uh that that is driving this experience needs to be as invisible as possible and really should be totally invisible ideally um so that on the one hand is is something that i think i would say about this on the other hand i think from the very beginning of of uh parks and attractions going you know all the way back to coney island and 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 before Parks have always been places where people have come to experience new technology, new transportation. Um, they, they, it, it's where people can go to experience things at scale that they might not have in their back in the day. You know, maybe back in their village or their their town. I mean, uh, electric lights, for example. The, the reason why roller coasters and other and parks have all these beautiful little twinkling lights on them is because very early in in, in the early days we, we were talking about trolley parks the trolley companies very often used to also operate the electric utility and not all homes had electricity and they were trying to sort of push the idea of you know let's build out the uh, the the electric grid so that we can make more money. Um, and so they would showcase the technology by putting these dazzling lights on their on their coasters and and throughout the park. And people would come from from far away and go to the park and be dazzled by the the electric lights. So this has been something that's been going on for for you know for forever. Uh, and that's really, I think, one of the key purposes for for par parks and attractions is to showcase new technology. And it's where we you know experience virtual reality and augmented reality and all these monorails and all the people movers, all these things that you know these futuristic things. Uh, you, you you go to parks to experience them. So that's always been the role, and I think will continue to be be the role and no i don't think we can go too far with technology i'm looking forward um 
to seeing what can be done with augmented reality, for example, which is really in its infancy. And I think there are some really exciting things that uh, that uh, that that are, are down the road. So my biggest takeaway from that is one of the best ways to honor the past and the history is to showcase new technology into the future, which is what the industry has been doing for so many years and so many so many decades as it is. So that's a that's an interesting way to I I guess to think about it to look at it. Uh, yeah, it's 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 sort of this this giant circle. Uh, I, <laughs> parks are doing what they've always been doing. There's a there's there's a deep sense of nostalgia for folks as old as I am uh, to to go back to these wonderful parks. Um, but there's also this this great sense of wonder of experiencing something like, uh, you know, the Harry Potter attractions at Universal or Star Wars Galaxy's Edge and seeing these incredible things uh, that it it's just um, it, it's just uh, amazing, really, what what uh, what. Uh, attraction designers are doing with technology and continue to do. And, and uh, I'm just in awe of them, really. Yeah. So we won't ask you what your favorite park is. <laughs> you already told us that, that you don't have one and, and gave us a very good reason for it. But what about an obscure park that you visited? And not necessarily obscure in a bad way, but uh, maybe it's something that just doesn't fit the, I would say, the traditional cookie cutter mold of what we tend to see in theme or amusement parks uh, that you have visited uh, just in, in your travels over the years. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking about this one. Um, you know, uh, Matt, as I was saying, I, I live here in New England and we were talking about Canopy Lake. I would imagine a lot of folks listening to this are like, what the heck is Canopy Lake? <laughs> uh, it's this wonderful trolley park in southern New Hampshire uh, that has um, a, a wonderful old wooden coaster that folks can see from the parking lot, the Yankee Cannonball and some wonderful old rides and, you know, a great old feeling. It's a lakeside park. Uh, so that that would I would say is one. And, and just to kind of stay on this New England theme, there, there's, there are a couple of other parks that I'd like to throw out that I absolutely adore. Um, Santa's Village, which is up on the White Mountains in New Hampshire, an absolutely wonderful, wonderful place. And I could I could talk forever about Santa's Village, but um, uh, it, it was one of the original theme parks and it's still owned this day by the family. I think they're in their fourth, possibly their fifth generation. I think it's the fourth generation is operating it. Just a delightful, delightful park that is way under the radar and um, and and very underrated. Storyland is another wonderful park that is no longer family owned and operated, but is the, of the same vintage as Santa's Village goes back to the, I believe, the early 1950s. Um, possibly the late 1940s. I think it was the early 1950s, though. Um, another wonderful park, both of them geared to families with young children. Um, but I would say perhaps the most obscure park uh, that I could think of, and, and um, uh, Matt, I'm, I'm not even sure if you know about this, but um, there is a park called Salem Willows, which is in Salem, Massachusetts. And it is, I believe, and, and I'm actually talking to the folks at the um, uh, the uh, National Amusement Park Historical Association about this. I, I think it's a uh, it's a, a not reported trolley park because it there used to be trolleys that ran to this um, place called Salem Willows. There have been amusements there. Uh, and to this day, there are the only amusements that remain there is this wonderful old vintage carousel and um, uh, some little spinning rides, including this old boat ride uh, that uh, uh, that the little kids get in these little boats that spin around in a, in a small pool that has been there probably since, I don't know, the 1920s or something. I went in it when I was a little kid, still there to this day. Um, they have perhaps the best popcorn in the world at Salem Willows that is popped in this ancient gas uh, popper that I think is comes goes back to the late 1800s. Uh, so that was probably the most obscure park that I, I bet you haven't haven't even heard about. Um, and and uh, so that's that's my pick for the most obscure park. Wow. So no, I had not heard of it, but I wrote it down. It's on my list now. Um, <laughs> so speaking of that, do you have um, a list or um, some places you like to be that you've never been to? Yes, absolutely. Um, 
people may think that I travel the world constantly going to parks and attractions. And unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, between time and budgets and family and so forth, I'm just not able to do as much as I, I would like. There are many parks in Europe that I have not been to. Uh, Tivoli Gardens, uh, the place that that heavily influenced Walt Disney uh, in, in Denmark, in downtown Copenhagen, I would love to go to. Bakken, also in Denmark, um, the oldest continuously operating park in the world um, is another place that I would that I desperately want to get out to. Uh, Europa Park, uh, Efteling. These are some places in Europe that that I that I hope to get to someday. And then there there are a bunch of parks in the Middle East that I've yet to uh, visit. Um, in Abu Dhabi and in Dubai, there's uh, all this development going on. Very exciting things happening. Um, I'm hoping perhaps someday to get to Six Flags Kidia, which is under construction in Saudi Arabia. It's a bit um, controversial, I suppose, to travel to Saudi Arabia and support what's going on there. But um, I, 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 I wrestle with, you know, whether it, it, it makes sense for me to, to go there, but um, I'm fascinated by what they're doing. Um, and, and also in, in Asia, I, I, I have not been to Tokyo Disneyland, would love to get to Tokyo Disney Sea and see that very unique park and the very unique attractions that they have there. So that, that's just some of the places that I hope to get to someday. That's a good list. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so Arthur, as we start to uh, wind this down here and get close to the end of the interview, if people want to learn more about you, if they want to get a hold of you directly, uh, you shared the link to your uh, sub stack earlier. Uh, where, where would you send them? Well, certainly to about theme parks dot fun. Uh, that's uh, about theme parks dot fun. I didn't realize that there was a URL a suffix that uh, was fun, but there is. So uh, that would be the place to go to uh, check out, uh, not only to subscribe, but uh, people can see uh, a catalog of my past articles that I've written there over the past few months. Um, I am on Twitter at About Theme Parks and at on Facebook at About Theme Parks. So that would be the uh, place where, <clears throat> that would be the place where people, the, those would be the places, I'm sorry, where people could find me. Excellent. Well, uh, like Josh said, we will put all those in the uh, show notes so every, everybody can click on those and, and find you and follow you. Uh, more great things coming from Arthur about theme parks. No pun intended with that, but um, focusing on uh, how we can best enjoy this industry. So Arthur, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And for everybody who's out there watching and listening, just remember, we are all attraction pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.